This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. This is Amanda Welch, and today in the Bioscience Mastery Academy, we'll be talking about outliers and negative results. Today's presenter is Karen O'Hanlon-Court, the Editorial Manager at Bitesize Bio. So let's dive straight into the presentation. Over to you, Karen. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for the introduction, and welcome to you all to the second lecture in the Ethical Research Practice module. And to anybody who was with us last week for the plagiarism lecture, welcome back. So as Amanda said, today's lecture will be about reporting negative results and outliers. So I'll just give a quick outline for the lecture. So we will start out with part one, where we'll just talk about outliers. What is an outlier? When is it okay to exclude an outlier? And factors that you should consider for outlier removal in your work. In the second part of the lecture, we will look at negative results. I will try to take you through what a negative result is and why we should report such results. Um, unlike the plagiarism lecture, it's a bit difficult to give a set of rules or a set of guidelines as to how you can actually handle outliers and negative results. My hope today would be that I would leave you with some ideas and some new ways of thinking about it so that you yourself will find your own way as you develop as a scientist. But nevertheless, you will learn a few concrete things today. So you will learn what an outlier is, how to detect outliers, a few situations where you can almost always exclude an outlier, and why and when we should report negative results and where to go if you have negative results that you want to communicate. So part one, outliers. So first of all, what is an outlier? Well, the definition from the Merriam-Webster online dictionary is that an outlier is a, stati a statistical observation that is markedly different in value from the others of the sample. So in other words, an outlier is a bit like an odd one out. At least this is how I often think about it. And this is often how it looks in a data set. So sometimes it's really obvious that we have an outlier when we get either a very high or a very low value in our data set, for example, in A. So this graph here is something which I've made up myself. It's purely hypothetical, although it does represent a study that you might find in a publication or that you, that you could find in a publication. The graph shows the MIC50 of drug A against clinical fungal isolates. So for anyone who's not familiar with the terminology, the MIC50 is a concentration of a drug that inhibits your, your, the growth of your test organism, microorganism, by 50%. So here we have 15 isolates across the x-axis and the MIC50 in milligrams per liter on the y-axis. And as you can see straight away, most of the isolates, in fact, all bar one, are responsive to five milligrams per liter of drug A, while isolate eight sticks out a bit like a sore thumb. And this is most likely an outlier, but just because it's an outlier, it doesn't mean it's not interesting. It could be very interesting. It could actually be an isolate that is drug resistant. And if this is the case, it should be studied further. And it typically would be studied further um, in this kind of experimental setup. The next example shows where it's not always so obvious whether we actually have an outlier or not. This is another hypothetical data set showing the amount of glucose that is needed to culture soil bacteria. So the scenario here is that you are um, a researcher interested in finding new antibiotics in bacteria that you find in the soil. There are 15 bacteria that you're interested in and you'd like to be able to grow them in the lab and extract antibiotics. And ideally, to make your life easier, you'd like to be able to have one standard media that you use for them all. 
But you know that bacteria vary in terms of their carbon sources and how much they need to grow. So you do a little test experiment to find out how much glucose these different bacteria need. And as you can see, the results are rather variable. Species 1 can grow on about 17 or 18 grams of glucose per litre, while species 13 needs about 45. And there's nothing more to say about this kind of a data set, except that you probably need to add about 45 grams of glucose in every litre of media if you want to grow all the species in the same media type. But I will come back to this data set later because it's a good example of a data set where you might actually want to find out if something was an outlier or not, if it was interesting for you in your work. Before we go to that point, we will first of all talk about the categorization of outliers. So can we actually categorize outliers? Well, yes, we can. There are several types of outliers. It's a bit beyond the scope of the lecture today to go into them, but I am happy to provide some additional resources for anybody who's interested in it. The type of outlier that probably occurs most commonly in biological experiments is the point outlier or the global outlier. And this occurs when one data point stands out from the rest of the data. As uh, the example I showed uh, with the MIC-50 data. Within this type of outlier, there can be many reasons. So an outlier can be the result of experimental failure. These type of outliers are sometimes called technical outliers. There can be many causes. So it could be that you have a poorly optimized assay. So if you have an assay that doesn't give consistent results or has a lot of uncontrolled variables, then it's quite likely that you'll get variable results, which will produce outliers from time to time. It could also be that you have a sample that didn't run correctly. For example, a PCR tube where there was a hole in the tube and the sample came out. Um, it could be a pipetting error. It could be got to do with precipitation of reactions in your tube. It could be a case of contamination or in most cases, I would say the cause is unknown, but the outlier is not reproducible. Luckily, it's generally easy to identify these kind of outliers, but it does require good knowledge of your setup and your protocols as well as a good understanding of the limitations of your assay. Um, an outlier can, on the other hand, also be due to real variation, and this variation is usually referred to as biological outliers. The variation might just be random. So, for example, in clinical samples, there's no such thing as two clinical samples that are the same. So whatever you're testing in clinical samples could result in some outliers. You might be less likely to see these kind of random outliers in cell lines, which are more homogeneous and which are more standardized. Outliers um, of the biological type can provide really important clues and shouldn't be omitted from your data set without careful consideration. Um, for example, isolate 8 in the first graph might actually provide really important clues about how drug resistance develops in pathogenic fungi. And so this should definitely not be omitted from the data set. If anything, it could be the most interesting isolate from this data set. Experimental setups that are very prone to outliers require careful data interpretation and should be subjected to robust statistical analysis. So if you're working with an experimental setup that um, is quite variable in nature, but it's not because of technical issues, it's just because you're working with a very complex sample type, um, for example, um, clinical samples, and you're prone to a lot of outliers, you want to be sure that whatever statistical analysis that you're doing is actually able to cope with those outliers. And I would say the best thing to do is to consult a statistician who can actually help you make the right choices. So now you know a little bit about what outliers are. How do you actually detect them? Well, sometimes they do stick out like a sore thumb, but not always. There are a number of mathematical approaches to outlier detection. Again, this is a little bit beyond the scope of the lecture today. Um, 
also because I'm not actually a statistician, so um, I don't plan on getting into that very complicated uh, technical details with you. But again, I'm happy to provide um, additional resources to anyone who's interested. There is unfortunately no universally accepted outlier detection method. And in general, the method that is used for outlier detection is dependent upon the distribution of the data that you actually have. So whether it follows a normal distribution or not, or other kinds of distributions. Many of the available methods do make assumptions about the distribution, as I said, and they rely on calculations of things like the mean and the standard deviation. And since the mean can be very affected by extreme values in a data set, these, um, many of the available outlier detection methods are also influ influenced by these extreme values. So again, this is another um, situation where it's a good idea to consult with a statist statistician to make sure that you're actually choosing the right method. Um, for argument's sake, or for the sake of showing you today how you could detect an outlier, we're just gonna look at one test. It's called the Tukey test. This test can be applied to most data ranges. It doesn't make assumptions about the distribution of your data values, and it's independent of the mean and standard deviation, and is therefore not affected by extreme values, which could easily occur in your data range. And you can read more about how this test was derived by following the reference um, just here. So following the Tukey method, there are a number of steps that you have to carry out to detect an outlier. So now we're back to the sample with the amount of glucose required to culture the soil bacteria. And I have just put the raw data that I used to generate this graph um, just right here. And so what you do is you rank the values. So you take the raw values, which are the grams per liter, and you rank them from smallest to largest in a line as I have done so here. When you have this done, you then find the median. And the median is the middle value in the set when all values are ranked in order. So we have 15 values, so the median is smack bang in the middle. But if you actually had an uneven number of values, then the median would be calculated by taking the mean or the average of the two middle values. Once you've found the median, you can then find the Q1, Q3 and IQR. So the Q1 is the first quartile or quartile one, and this is actually halfway between the lowest value and the median. So when I say halfway, I mean it's positioned as the halfway point. You don't have to do any calculations here. You just pick out the value that actually lies in the middle. It's 18 in this case. Uh, quartile three is the value that lies halfway between the median and the highest value, and here it's 29. And when you found both Q1 and Q3, you can then calculate the interquartile range by subtracting Q1 from Q3. And this is simply 29 minus 18, which is 11. According to Tukey's formula, an outlier is either greater than Q3 plus one and a half times the interquartile range, or less than Q1 minus one and a half times the interquartile range. So plugging these various values that we've just found into the formula, we find out that outliers from this data set are either going to be less than one and a half or greater than 45 and a half. And as you can see, we actually do have one outlier just because the boundary for an outlier was 45 and a half. And this is actually species 13 from the graph. And yes, now that you know it's an outlier, you can see that it, it does kind of stick out a bit from the rest, but I'm not sure I would have been able to pick this out as an outlier if I didn't do um, this uh, outlier detection test. But I will also say that in any case, um, this is very, very close to not being an outlier. So um, what you would normally do is you would normally repeat the experiment a few times and see if 
this was actually just the result of variation because species 13 could be at 40 in the next test and then it wouldn't be an outlier. So this is just really an, ex this is just a demonstration to show you how you would do it. But of course you would need to do the experiment more than once to begin with. So now hopefully you know a little bit more about what an outlier is and how you could find them. The real question is how should we handle outliers? This is really the million dollar question. And unfortunately there is no hard and fast rule, but the following pointers should help you. So the first thing that I always do when I get a data set where something looks like an outlier is I try to identify a technical explanation. And this involves thinking, looking carefully, not just at the data, but at the tubes or the cultures or the plates or whatever it is you are using to look for technical issues, but also talking to your lab mates because it could be that they have some useful information like a machine that's been acting up or a piece of equipment that is waiting on service, for example. Things to think about here are the timing and large experiments. So if you have a large experiment where you're running a lot of samples, it, there could be quite a long time between the first sample and the last sample being run. And what has actually changed during that time? Have any environmental factors changed, such as temperature or humidity? These are things to take into account. Also think about the limitations of your assay. If you know that your assay is not very well controlled, or if you have not identified all of the factors which can influence results in your assay, then it's likely that the outlier is due to some of these limitations. As I mentioned in a previous slide, you might also get a technical outlier because a sample just didn't run correctly. It could be a pipetting error, it could be got to do with precipitation of reactants, or it could be got to do with contamination. One tip which I will give you here and excuse the pun, this is actually about tips, is something that um, I came across when I was a PhD student. So I worked in a lab where we filled our own tip boxes and we autoclaved them. And sometimes those tip boxes get really dirty on the inside. And when you're pipetting really fast, you're not always looking to see how clean your tips are. So if you can't find anything else, um, but you feel it might be got to do with a pipetting issue, have a look in the tip box and see if there is any dirt because this could easily um, mess up your results. If you can answer yes to any of these things, you can probably omit the outlier and repeat the experiment. But what if the outlier is reproducible? Well, a reproducible outlier is probably a biological outlier and might be very interesting. But before you go ahead with a lot of resources and spending a lot of time investigating this outlier, make sure that it's not just a case of faulty equipment. So now I'll just give you another example. Um, and this is something that, I'm, um, that I know from previous experiences. Um, I was once involved in a project doing a lot of PCR reactions where we were using just a standard PCR machine, but we had a lot of tubes and we used the same layout each time we did the experiment. And we, we consistently found that there was a couple of samples that just gave a very unusual and rather unexpected result. And it may have been very interesting, but just before we got carried away with ourselves, we decided to randomize the order in which we put our samples onto the machine. And we suddenly seen that this was actually not something got to do with our samples, but it was, we later found out it was got to do with the fact that a few uh, wells in the PCR machine were actually not working. So sometimes what appears to be a reproducible outlier is actually a technical fault that you're reproducing. So if you're in doubt, um, change the order of your samples and see what happens. An example of an actual biological outlier though could be that you generate a series of 10 bacterial mutants. Um, so you delete genes that are involved in host invasion, so invasion of host tissue. So when you delete these genes, you expect these mutants to be less virulent or less pathogenic than the wild type counterparts. However, infection models reveals one of them to actually be consistently more virulent. And this is not something that you expected. And it's a bit difficult to understand, but it could be that that particular gene 
had a second function and maybe it was involved in um, facilitating recognition of this bacteria by the immune system. So this could be very interesting to follow up on. So it's just to say that sometimes a biological outlier could actually be a um, starting point for a really important discovery. Um, before we finish up on outliers and move on to negative results, I'll just give you an example of what a technical outlier might look like. So this is um, fake data, which I've made up myself um, from a typical Bradford assay. So you're doing a Bradford assay generally to measure protein concentration in samples. You prepare five replicates in this case of a standard curve with BSA, and you read the absorbance at 595 nanometers on a spectrophotometer. And the graph shows the different, shows the data for the five replicates. And as you can see, four of them look very similar. So the lines are pretty much superimposed on each other. But replicate three in green is very different. And I would say straight off the bat that the data for replicate three is an outlier and is probably the result of experimental error and is probably got to do with some pipetting error because all dilutions in the series actually gave the same OD. And this is um, very suspicious. So if you have five replicates, you can easily omit replicate three from your analysis and move on. There are other similar situations where this kind of technical outlier can occur, for example, in qPCR or in ELISA or in an enzymatic reaction where you have a lot of replicates, technical replicates that should actually give identical results to each other. And when they don't, it's often because of a pipetting um, issue or a dilution issue. And this is because these kind of reactions not only require the pipetting of very small volumes, which already carries a risk for pipetting errors, but they often involve mixing a lot of different components together. So I would say to avoid these kind of technical outliers ruining your experiment or sort of making you um, dump your experiment because you don't have enough good replicates, make sure that you just include plenty of replicates because then you can easily drop one or even two if you need to and move on with the rest. And now I'll show you an example of a biological outlier. Again, this is purely hypothetical data. The scenario is a clinical trial where the goal is to assess the safety of a new antibiotic in 50 healthy male volunteers. So none of these people actually have any infection. It's just to see how safe the new drug is. And so generally when these kind of clinical trials are done, um, a battery of safety tests is carried out, testing the vital organs and other checks, um, other measures of health status. Um, in this case, kidney function tests, total blood counts and heart checks were carried out for all participants and the results were normal in all cases. But when a liver function test was carried out, two individuals, so number 22 and 32, which are in red, they actually had really, really low liver function scores. And so they're definitely outliers, but the findings are really important. And these are findings which could easily happen in this kind of clinical uh, trial. These outliers might actually outliers might actually reveal a population of individuals for which the developmental drug is dangerous. So it could be that these people have some um, unknown genetic susceptibilities to getting a really severe side effect with this drug. And the kind of consequences that this could have would be that if this drug was to eventually reach the market, that anyone who gets this drug would actually have to undergo regular liver function tests. So this kind of bio biological outlier is extremely important in um, making informed medical decisions. We're going to stop it there for outliers and we will return briefly at the end when I try to wrap up what we've learned in the lecture. But now we will move on to part two of the talk, which is negative results. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. 
To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. So what are negative results anyway? There are probably many ways to answer this question. I don't say that my answers are the be all and the end all, but this is my take on it. Um, so in the current scientific research landscape, there are, and this is not just my take, this is a fact, but um, these are my ideas surrounding the idea of negative results. So in the current scientific research landscape, many valid experimental results never see the light of day. And when I say valid, I mean that the experiments were actually carried out in a controlled manner and the results are reproducible and they're, they're valid scientific results, but they just don't see the light of day. And why is this? Well, they may be considered negative because they are unexpected or they don't seem worthy of publication because they're not groundbreaking. So maybe you test a drug that you expect to be better than the competitor drug and then it's no better. So it's not really a groundbreaking result. It might be easily considered a negative result and then you might not publish it. This tendency not to publish these kind of negative results creates a positive bias whereby experimental findings are selectively published based on their impact, their attractiveness, their prestige and so on. And this trend may actually lead to serious misrepresentations about what is actually occurring in biological systems. So if we base all of our theories and all of our beliefs on the data that is published, um, but we don't actually know anything about all the discoveries that are not published, um, we may actually have some serious misrepresentations or misunderstandings about what is actually going on in biological systems, such as in pathways or in diseases and so on. Within negative results, just to break it up a little bit more and give some examples, um, you could have a result that actually just confirms the null hypothesis. So for example, you're looking at a gene or a protein or a new drug and you expect it to have some role in the body, but then you find out that it doesn't have that role at all. So it didn't behave the way you hypothesized it would, so it just confirmed the null hypothesis. So the null hypothesis would have been that this drug actually doesn't have this role. And that may not be very interesting um, for you to continue working with as a researcher, but that doesn't mean it's not a result that shouldn't be communicated out to others. Um, a negative result could also be a result where no positive finding is made. So for example, a diagnostic test where the results are negative and the patient does not actually have the condition under investigation. So yes, the results are negative, but they're still important. And I'll, I'll come back to this in a little while when I give you a case study about how it's important to publish negative results. There are a number of reasons why you might not want to report negative results. And I must admit, I, I do understand them, but that's possibly because I'm a product of the current scientific publication landscape. The first reason is that um, reporting negative results is not really prestigious. It's not really the done thing with the way the current publication landscape is. There's often a lack of eagerness to report studies that are not fruitful. So, you know, science nowadays is very competitive and people are always trying to publish the best results in the best impact journals and get the most citations so that they can get the most funding and so on. So if you spend a long time working on study and you think it's going to give really great results and make some landmark discoveries in the field, but then it doesn't, do you really want to communicate all of that out in front of your competitors? Possibly not. It's also difficult to publish these kind of results nowadays because a lot of the high impact journals they won't accept them because they actually want to accept results that are groundbreaking and attractive and are considered to have a large impact. The second reason would be that the data simply doesn't fit into your story. And here I have story in inverted commas because of course science is like telling a story. Writing a manuscript is telling a story of what actually happened. 
But unfortunately, nowadays, a lot of manuscripts are written. Um, well, I won't say they're completely written, but I, I know of cases where manuscripts are almost written before the experiments are even done. And in this way, it's a preconceived story. Um, so you have an idea about what you want to publish, and then you do the experiments, and you don't get the right results, and the data doesn't fit in. So for example, all but one of your mutants have the expected phenotypes. Maybe it's easier just to admit the last one from your paper than to come up with an explanation. Another reason might be you don't actually need the data to tell the story. Um, and this could actually be because there's often a word limit and a page limit on how many um, and, and a figure limit on how much and how many results you can actually uh, submit to a journal. For example, here you aim to characterize a fungal protein by gene knockout. You carry out extensive phenotypic analysis and more than 70% of your experiments don't give you any hints to the protein's function. The remaining experiments do provide hints, so you focus all your attention on these results. And I think that's fair enough to, because you can't focus on everything as a scientist, it's fair enough to focus on the ones that actually may um, have the greatest result of revealing something novel. But I think when you publish this kind of study, you should also at least mention the fact that you did the other 70% of experiments and they didn't reveal anything, because it could be that that's going to be the basis of somebody else's discovery in the future. Um, this next reason is not necessarily the last or the only other reason, but it is kind of a, a worrying reason. And this for me is really on the verge of, of committing some kind of uh, um, misconduct. So the data actually contradicts your story. You could be interested in characterizing a putative disease modifying protein. Maybe you've silenced its expression by gene silencing, siRNA, in immortalized or in cancer cell lines and observed phenotypes that agreed with your hypothesis. So that's a good result then. Um, now you want to repeat the experiments in primary cells because they better mimic the real life situation. But when you do the primary cell experiments, you get very surprising and very different results. And then you have a dilemma. You can't really explain this right now. You don't have the time to do more. So you just ignore it and move on. And this is kind of a dangerous situation to be in. Of course, it could be that the method that you're using to silence the RNA is just not working very well in the primary cells. But it could just as easily be that results that you observed in your immortalized cell lines are actually just an artifact of those cell lines and not a true biological result. So ignoring these results and moving on, it, it could actually be misinforming the field. And in my mind, this is like conducting some kind of misconduct. So there are more reasons why you should report negative results than reasons why you should consider not reporting negative results. Um, these reasons are not listed in any sort of order of importance. This is like a brainstorm on my behalf. And you're very welcome to add reasons to this in the discussions in the forum. You're also welcome to agree or even disagree with me. Um, but I believe that you should report negative results because you obtain them fair and square by performing well-controlled experiments and they are reproducible and valid results. And so to me, they're just as valid as all the other results that you might want to publish. Although I do realize that in this day and age, it's not always easy. Um, so these uh, reasons are kind of like the way it should be, not the way it is. Could also be the case that somebody else might be sitting with similar results and having the similar doubts or similar confusion as you are. And if neither of you report your findings, you're holding back potentially important information from the research community that may actually slow down the progress in finding the cause of a disease or the treatment for a disease or some other important discovery. I believe that you have a duty to report your findings to others to get the input of the community 
let them decide if it is interesting or not. Why should you be the one who makes that decision solely by yourself? You also have a responsibility to your funders to report the findings of work that they actually financed. And this is all the more so if you do your work with state funding, so taxpayers' money. I think you can easily risk leading others on if you don't report the cases where your protocol or setup doesn't actually work. So if you just remember the example we talked about with the immortalized and the primary cell lines, you could easily lead somebody astray there by not reporting those negative results. And you should just report negative results because you don't need to be able to explain every result you get. Sometimes you get a result that surprises you, but that, that's good because that could be actually the start of a really important discovery. Um, I think it's a shame nowadays that when we write scientific papers to send into journals that we always have to think about how to write our story in the most tight way so that the reviewers can't pick holes or so that everything just adds up really, really nicely. And I don't believe that this is the way it should be. And finally, as I've already alluded to, performing scientific research is not just about telling a nice story. It's much more than that. It's about discovery. It's about progress and it's about development. And for these reasons, I think we should be very transparent and we should be able to report negative results. Here's a case study about why it's important to report negative results. There are many more of these. Um, so I would suggest looking through the literature. It's very interesting. This is just one. This study was carried out by a Mexican group of researchers and reported in BMC research notes a couple of years ago. Um, the study was about detecting the seroprevalence. Um, so seroprevalence is the rate at which you detect antibodies against a particular uh, pathogen in um, blood or bodily samples of people in a particular population. So these uh, researchers were interested in measuring trypanosoma cruzi seroprevalence in a particular population in Mexico. And trypanosoma is just a kind of a parasite. And what they did was they performed this study with over 200 women and children in this particular community. The blood of these people was collected by finger prick and two different tests were performed. So they did an ELISA test and they did a rapid test. The rapid test is a bit like a pregnancy test. In all people, the results were negative. So nobody tested positive for this parasite and they reported the results. And you might think, well, if nobody tested positive, then it's not very interesting. So what? Well, actually, no, that's not the case. Um, it is very interesting. The authors actually point out that negative seroprevalence studies are often not published, but that publishing such findings actually contributes to a more accurate estimation of seroprevalence. And this is because how can we actually make any kind of conclusions about how common a disease occurs if we don't have data on people who don't have the disease? And secondly, Publishing these findings allows calculation of the specificity of the diagnostic test or tests used. And this is because actually making assertions about the specificity of a test is defined as the proportion of non-infected individuals correctly identified as negative by the test. So if you don't get negatives, you can't actually validate the test. And so this is really important. And I think this is a good example of why it's critical to report negative results so that the health authorities in this area can actually make the right decisions um, and also look at what they have done because it could be that they've actually done something that has somehow slowed down the transmission of this parasite. And that could also be very useful for other populations where this parasite is more prevalent. Now I'm gonna tell you about a journal of negative results in biomedicine. The journal is actually called the Journal of Negative Results in Biomedicine. 
you may not be aware that this exists. And there are actually other journals out there that report negative results. Um, I only found out about these a couple of years ago, and I think that they're very interesting. They have really interesting mission statements and really good arguments as to why you should report negative results. The scope of this particular journal is uh, that it is a platform for the publication and discussion of non-confirmatory and negative data, as well as unexpected, controversial and provocative results in the context of current tenants, current tenants or beliefs. So I actually think it's a little bit unfortunate that we even call these kind of results negative because it puts a very negative spin on them. Um, I think non-confirmatory are perhaps well, I don't have another suggestion right now, but I would be interested to see um, or to hear your thoughts on this, because I think negative is a bit, is not really the right word for these kind of results. The overall aim of the journal is to provide researchers with responsible and balanced information in order to improve experimental design and clinically relevant decisions. So as I mentioned a couple of slides back, the trend to selectively publish results can lead to some serious misrepresentations of the way things actually are. And this journal and other negative results journals are actually aiming to to provide people with more balanced information. And that's really, really great. So they have a, a list of specific aims that include encouraging publication of results that actually challenge current principles and beliefs, encouraging submissions that illustrate how commonly used methodologies are actually unsuitable for studying particular phenomena. And I think this is really, really interesting and something that any researcher who's struggled with trying to get a protocol working in a particular cell type but not been able to get it work would really appreciate how many times have you been in the lab wondering am i actually wasting my time here how many people have tried to do this before me but have failed but have not actually published it so this is really really good and um, they also have the aim to promote and invite the publication of clinical trials that do not demonstrate superiority over currently available treatments. And this is something that I won't go into a lot, but I'll just say that there is actually a lot of debate going on right now because um, there are many pharmaceutical companies who don't want to actually publish the results of clinical trials where they don't demonstrate that their test drug is superior to other drugs. And this is a big issue, and this is something that you can follow if you're interested by just um, going online and, and basically looking it up. That pretty much brings us to the end of what we have time for today. Um, I'll leave you with a few conclusions or take home messages. And hopefully by now you will know what an outlier actually is. And you know at least one way to detect outliers. Just remember that you can always ask the statisticians in your department for more help. There is no rule of thumb regarding outlier inclusion and exclusion but you can almost always ask yourself whether or not there might be a technical explanation. And if it's a technical outlier, then it's easier to omit it. If there is no technical explanation, it's time to put your thinking cap on and look outside the box. You may be on the, the cusp of an exciting new discovery. Within negative results, there is no standard set of guidelines on what actually constitutes a negative result. Unfortunately, the current publication landscape doesn't always permit the reporting of negative results, at least not necessarily in the journals that you believe are most relevant for your field or in the journals that you um, that you think are um, high impact enough. If you do want to communicate your negative results or challenge current thinkings, uh, another option is to present your work at a conference, even with poster, because this way you have a chance of getting your thoughts across without having to go through the rigorous editorial process in the more, um, and when I say mainstream journals, in this case, I mean not negative results journals. 
failing all of that, you could check out the journals of negative research. Um, I do think that this is something that we're going to see more of in the future. And hopefully one day we will actually see the inclusion of these kind of negative results in all journals so that there's, again, not a separation between the, the positive results and the negative results. Remember, though, that whatever you do, there is actually a fine line between omitting a result or an outlier and committing an act of fraud. So this is something that you need to consider carefully, and it is something that will become more natural to you as you progress through your career. Here's a few examples of references for further reading. So the first two are about outliers and cleaning up data and how you can clean your data and remove outliers in a responsible and ethical manner. And the second two um, reviews are actually about how scientists perceive um, the current publication culture and how um, basically um, surveys about how different results or different uh, public uh, journals are actually biased towards um, publishing positive findings, but also how the citation, uh, the citation culture is actually um, uh, very much linked with um, positive results. So let me say this in a more easier way. Um, if you publish results that are deemed significant or have a high level of significance, you're more likely to get um, cited than if you publish results with low significance. And I believe this is also independent of impact factor. So these are some really interesting um, reviews that you can read. And these are just a few. There are actually many more of these available on PubMed and in the other search engines. And I'll probably put up a few more as I find them in the forums also. So keep an eye on that. That really brings me to the end of the talk. Thank you once again for your attention. Um, I'm ready to take any questions or comments that you have, and I do hope that you will join in the discussion in the community area on the Bioscience Mastery Academy website. Thank you, Karen. That was a really great um, presentation and discussion. Thank so, you. So, in this um, presentation, we covered what is an outlier and when it's okay to exclude one and the definition of a negative result and when we should report those negative results. So now I'm going to turn it over to the audience for questions. So we have a couple already, but please feel free to post any of the questions that you have in the questions box that appears on the right-hand side of your screen. So my question for, so I do have one question for you that came up to me when I was listening to your presentation. Okay. So for reporting negative results because you were talking about like the journal of negative results um mm -hmm. when like do you have any advice for talking with your mentor or advisor about submitting those to those journals yeah i mean that's actually a really great question and it's not something that i mentioned at all today but absolutely of course you should you should always discuss um all your plans for publication with your mentor because they are after all more experienced mm -hmm. they know the field they know the publication process and they should be in a good position to advise you so yes absolutely and um, one thing that i may also not have made clear is that i am not encouraging people to submit their results in journals of negative results um, i actually think it's a little bit of a shame that that's sort of the it might be seen as the last resort for some mm -hmm. people who who don't have anything uh, and i don't even want to say anything positive but anything let's say groundbreaking to report um 
But that probably is your only option if you have basically done a study that has not revealed anything novel at all, Mm -hmm. but has been carried out in the correct manner according to the scientific method and the results are valid and reproducible um, before you would consider putting your work into that kind of journal I would have of course discussed it with your supervisor um, and, and I think I mean is there actually any such thing as a negative result anyway I mean to me a negative result it should be a result that's that's crap or an experiment that doesn't work I mean right after that, a result is a result. Um, it's just a matter of, of figuring out how important or how, um, how groundbreaking the result may be. Um, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I, would, I think it would be really interesting to actually talk to some supervisors about this mm-hmm. um, and see what their take is. Because, of course, you as the PhD student or the, the postdoc, a lot of the time you just want to get your work published. Um, depending on the stage of career you're at and what your future goals are. Whereas your supervisor will often have another agenda and that is, well, they need to get funding. So they need to publish in high impact journals or they need to be better than their competitors or they need to get that promotion or that tenure track position or whatever the case may be. So it could be very interesting to hear their views on, um, on journals of negative results. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have a question from um, our, I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name, but I think it's Oxa. Um, and so they say that getting negative results is almost the most frequent problem in molecular biology labs. However, they're not readily accepted by many journals. Do you have any advice or ideas um, about what the scientific community can do to address this problem? Um, at this moment, time moment in time, no. But I would say that if you sort of follow um, some of the discussions that are happening mm-hmm. online about these various journals of negative results, and there are some interesting discussions actually happening in the really high impact journals like Nature, also where where prominent scientists are actually coming forward and saying that you know what, this is an issue. Um, it could be that in the future things will change. But right now, I I, I don't know. I think. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I I don't have the solution right now. I would say, try to publish your results anyway, and get them out there because you never know who might find them and 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 who they may help. Because if you sit with it and do nothing, then nothing is going to happen. But if you publish it, somebody else may see it and it may make sense to them in light of their results. Um, and I would say to get uh, get involved in in discussions at conferences. Um, and seminars and um, your negative results. Yeah, yeah. So talk to other researchers. Also, talk to people who are quite like high profile in your field, Mm -hmm. because you know it could be that that you tell them something and they say, yeah, actually, one time I had a student who got a similar result, but we never did anything with it. You never know. You could be onto something. Yeah, that's a really great idea. I hadn't thought about that about um, putting that in there for conferences and stuff. I suppose you could also include that in um, poster presentations as well, like if you have... um... Absolutely. So the journals will refuse articles, but your poster will never refuse ink. (laughs) So it's up to you (laughs) what you want to put on your poster. (laughs) So you can certainly get a lot of uh, radical ideas out there on a poster, but it is one really good way of of pushing through with something that you're finding difficult to get out through the normal um, publication channels. And then I have another question about um, this time about outliers. Yeah. So um, I think 
you were mentioning about how doing replicates is the best way for, well, at least in molecular biology, to determine if there's some sort of experimental type error. And you were mm -hmm. talking about your um, pipette boxes. Um, yeah. Do you have any other um, situations where something small has happened with that caused um, outliers, but it was because of technical things, not biological things? Yeah, I mean, most of the time, I would say. I think you probably agree with me on that one, Amanda. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I don't know how many times in um, in qPCR, for example, mm -hmm. you just see things that are just way out. And it could be, I mean, it could be anything. It could be that you have genomic DNA contamination. If you're doing qPCR to look at gene expression and cDNA, mm -hmm. it could be that you have genomic DNA contamination, but your genomic DNA contains an intron. Um, mm -hmm. And so the resulting, um, sorry, the resulting amplicon will have a different um, set of properties than the amplicon from cDNA. And this you can see by doing melt curve analysis, for example. So I always did a melt curve analysis at the end of my qPCR runs. Um, just to actually see if I could find some explanation for outliers. So for, for amplification curves that were just way off with the others, it can be got to do with bubbles. Um, mm -hmm. Small volume reactions, bubbles can interfere with things. Um, also, when you're pipetting small volumes, make sure that you actually pipette down to the bottom of the tube and that things don't get stuck in the side of the tube. This has happened to me as well. Um, can easily happen with, um, with biochemical mm -hmm. reactions with proteins because some proteins are quite sticky and they just stick to the side of the tube. And then uh, that can create a big outlier. I actually spent a long time trying to solve a problem that was caused by something very, very small and uh, almost invisible being stuck to the side of a tube. Um, what else was I about to say? Yes, I was gonna say that nowadays you can actually get a lot of um, reagents that are colored and oh, this can yeah. help you. Yeah, so this can help you to sort of make sure that you are pipetting in all mm -hmm. wells and, and this kind of thing. I actually believe that there is one supplier out there that make um, reagents for a particular application that are, all the reagents are colored and the reagents have to be added in in a particular sequence. And with each new reagent that you add in, you get a, like you get successive color changes. Um, oh, yeah, so I mean, um, I can't remember exactly what kind of application it is now. I think it's, I think it might be some kind of um, like immunological assay or something. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I would say most of the time, my outliers in molecular biology have, they've usually been the result of technical issues. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so OXA also asks about um, statistical parameters. Can they, can those help exclude outliers? Yeah, I'm not really the best authority to, mm -hmm to really go into that so i i can't pretend that i am but i do know that there are some statistical tests that are better able to handle outliers than others and yeah, i would and say we'll that a, and we'll have, we'll have some lectures lecture. exactly yeah Later and it's fall. yeah and i mean statistics is so complex that if you have access to a statistician that would really be the best way to go um yeah i completely agree that. yeah i think not enough researchers actually do that <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of the seminar. So thank you again, Karen, for a illuminating presentation and a great discussion. Thank and you. finally, thanks to you, the audience, for joining us. The full video recording of the session will be available on the Bioscience Mastery Academy website from tomorrow, 
along with the slides and any other supporting materials. And as always in the Academy, we are here to help. So if you have any questions on this topic or any other, now or later, please post them in the forum and the mentoring team will be there to help. So we're gonna sign off now. We'll be back next week with a webinar on how to write your research paper. Check it out at biosciencemastery.com. Thank you and goodbye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listen In series, please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.